Chapter One of Six Women and the Invasion by Gabrielle Yerta and Marguerite Yerta Malera. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by J. L. Baldwin. Part One. It is no longer the pillar of fire. It is the pillar of cloud. It is the dark shadow of invasion that approaches. Chapter One. As you know only too well, in the year 1914, war set Europe on fire. That is to say, you the men made war, and we the women had but to comply. Let us be honest and true. Whereas you, heart of my heart, now gone to fight for your country, wished for this contest with the enthusiasm, spirit, and rage of youth, I wished for it too, but with terror, anguish, and remorse. Such is the difference. The place? The Ile de France. The part of my country, blessed among all, sweeter to my eyes than the most loudly sung. And in the Ile de France, Morny, a village of the Lanois, situated on a level plain. At ten miles distance, to the west of Morny, Léon is perched on a steep low hill. To the north, fields and meadows stretch out as far as the eye can reach, and towards the south, the forest of Saint-Gobain makes a long dark blot on the landscape. Beyond, a blue line of mountains closes the horizon like a wall. This peaceful scene, with its green meadows, fertile fields, rich forests, rich forests, villages nestling among orchards, with its good-humoured tenants wrapped up in a love of their country, sums up the treasures of the Ile de France. But it is also the seasoning of the French pie, this rotten ferment whose canker-like nature, frivolity, inconstancy, and folly, have spread into the noblest parts of France. You are not aware of this? No more was I, but I learned it from Hummel's Geography, published in 1876 for German families, and it is a conviction that Teutonic babies imbibe with their mother's milk. The dramatis personae? Six women, I have said. My mother-in-law, her four daughters, and I. Let me introduce them. Madame Valen, my mother-in-law, charms by her gentle dignity and by her handsome face, still young under waving gray hair. As to her daughters, when they all were little girls in pinafores, an old woman once cried out at the sight of their childish beauty, one is prettier than another. To which my husband, at that time a teasing schoolboy, retorted, one is naughtier than another. We do not believe this last assertion. I will only maintain that their beauty has grown with them. Genevieve, the eldest, is my favorite sister, another me, and for a long while we have not been able to do without one another. A supple shape, a lovely expressive face fringed with golden hair, clear eyes between black eyelashes, added to a fine intellect and well-poised faculties, make of her a privileged being. Her steadfast character always deals straightforwardly, whereas mine, just as tenacious, does not disdain maneuvering. Her sisters are tall and graceful. Yvonne has large black eyes, a tiny mouth, and splendid golden locks. She is the musician of the family, thinks nothing better in the world than the harmony of sweet sounds, and lives only for her art. Antoinette bears proudly an imperial beauty and a bachelor's degree, which she has recently carried off. As to Colette, the pet child of the family, by turns charming and execrable, she counts seventeen summers, and rejoices our eyes with the sweetest face ever seen, a rosebud complexion and cornflower eyes. Two representatives of the opposite sex intrude upon this company of women. My husband first. He is the tallest, the handsomest of the sons of men. 
"'When I see him, I think I behold a young god,' said one of our friends a few years ago. "'And I shall not cheapen these terms of praise by any description of him. "'If I confide to you that he is growing bald on his temples, "'be sure you don't go and tell him so. "'The loss is due to sojourns in Sagon and Panama. "'For this half of myself is a true globe-trotter "'and has seen the whole world. "'Without me, alas!' He is a man of great learning, and is deeply skilled in philology and theology. Such as he is, I adore him, and think it better to own it honestly, for fear my partiality might remain unperceived. The other specimen of the sterner sex, with whom I have to deal here, is a small Parisian boy, nine years old, owner of the most flippant tongue. By a stroke of carelessness he was sent to us for a fortnight, and like many another, has now to stay as a prisoner on account of the invasion. Out of common politeness, I have not yet mentioned my own person. The task of describing it is hateful. Of this self, fortunately, there is not much, fifty kilos at the utmost. In other words, I am slender. I have a pink and white complexion and very long auburn hair, a small insignificant nose, a large mouth, and serious eyes. I am generally called grandmother, in memory of a time when we acted Little Red Riding Hood. My husband always calls me Mr. Monkey, your poisonous ladyship, or Mrs. Kidd, vexatious names, truly, for a woman. We live in Paris the greater part of the year, but it is with pleasure that the whole family meets every summer in our country house at Morny to spend its holidays. When, about the 20th of July, 1914, Geneviève, Yvonne, and I arrived in the dear old place, my husband and Colette had been enjoying it for a fortnight. My mother-in-law and Antoinette were expected shortly. We had taken with us little Pierre Prat, whose mother, a good friend of ours, could not leave Paris for the present, and the health of the interesting boy required the country. We had hardly exchanged the usual kisses and renewed our knowledge of the place. We were hardly seated at the dinner-table when Colette cried out, "'Oh, grandmother, how lovely! Fancy, there will be a war! The day it is declared I shall dress like a boy and become a soldier!' "'Of course you will cut your beautiful locks, besmear your cheeks, and there you are. "'But tell me in earnest, Posy, do you think there will be a war?' "'I suppose my husband has a name of his own, but no one knows it. "'For the whole family he is brother, and I call him Posy. "'Now Mr. Posy thought war unavoidable, and began to expound the reasons that strengthened his opinion. "'A little tired of the journey, happy to be again in the country, "'I listened to the deep sounds of the dear voice I had not heard for the last fortnight.' but gave little heed to the meaning of his words. Besides, I was so sure there would be no war at all. We began to lead a blissful life. We enjoyed walks in the large garden and praised the sun and the green. What delightful holidays we would have! The mere thought of it led to lyrism. Oh, nature! Oh, idyll! Oh, blessed rest! At first nothing happened to trouble our peace. It will be remembered that the newspapers were rather encouraging. Optimism prevailed. My husband alone talked of an impending conflict, but he wished it so eagerly that I thought he might be mistaken in his prophecies. War is talked of every year, I said. It is but a summer topic. On the 26th of July there were alarming rumors, confirmed the day after. We then began to talk of war, to talk always about that, to talk of nothing else. Colette herself held no other conversation, and from her crimson lips dropped no other words than mobilization, armament, concentration. I shall never forget the night when troops crossed the village. I saw war that night, 
war the man-eater the great killer war himself the hour was grave france was preparing to withstand her enemies and was sending her armies to protect the frontiers troops marched through the village the whole night first came the foot-soldiers who filed off to the strains of the marseillaise and the chant de part leaning out of my window in a nightgown i tried to catch sight of something and i saw only a black flood endlessly rolling on the sight of this dark mass which marched on and sang was striking indeed the young voices had an accent of resolution and rage and gave the impression that all hearts throbbed as if by one impulse the men knew they were marching on to death and they sang as the volunteers of ninety-two may have sung sometimes there was silence and nothing was to be heard save the sound of steps as rhythmical as a heavy shower as the first battalion passed my husband laid his book aside lifted up his head and declared there can be no more doubt of it now and resuming his henri Ousset and his cigarette he buried himself again in his reading i was not so easily resigned to the situation a certitude had seized upon me too it is war i was trembling like a leaf shaken by the wind and i could not master my emotion i was not frightened i felt easy in my mind but my body was it due to primeval memory to misgivings or to the terrible thought that has been handed down from wars of yore i do not know but my frightened body was trembling convulsively when i was not leaning out of the window i thought lying by the side of my husband war is coming may god protect us i clasped his dear hand in despair i kissed him in an agony and said over and over again war will carry him off and i thought all over france the roads are covered with troops and thousands of women close to the man they love are listening to the steps of the soldiers and the rumbling of the cannon broken-hearted they kiss an adored face and with bitter tears repeat war will carry him off cavalry followed infantry then came gunners cannon and powder carts the heavy pieces rolled on with the noise of thunder and shook the house to its foundations it was about three o'clock in the morning a cold mist fell as if reluctantly from the cloudy sky the night was less dark and the moving forms passed slowly like shadows before my sight horses cannon and gunners wrapped up in their cloaks Dark in the dark haze, the outlines of men and animals seemed to sketch a new dance of death, in the midst of which the grim monster might have appeared at any moment. I was so deeply impressed by this phantasmagorical marching past that I almost expected to see death go up behind a gunner or get astride a cannon. I felt intensely that I was seeing war, war and death. War, the terrible tyrant, was marching along, and nothing would impede his progress still more foot-soldiers the men sing no more dawn is unfavorable to enthusiasm you set forth in the evening sanguine of success seeing at the end of the road victory triumph and glory but when morning comes dark and cold your exaltation sinks not that you feel less resolute but behind the brilliant phantoms your fancy had conjured up the night before you see grimacing slaughter and death and fire day broke bright and clear in the sun's lively beams all fears melted away there will be a war be it so the men will go and fight and we too will do something for france the following week was a medley of enthusiasms and sadnesses at last war and revenge were no more mere words at last germany would be crushed too long our enemy had wronged us 
we would wreak a tardy but fearful vengeance for our still unavenged disgrace for grievous humiliations daily inflicted on us o revenge o sun you rise and your first rays make our hearts sing like the granite of old egypt we lived in a fever war which approached cast its shadow before but it was a bright shadow the shadow of glory of more than human courage of manifold heroism it was the pillar of fire which shielding our hearts from the enemy and the terrors to come hid them from our eyes the passing breath of enthusiasm quickened the beating of our hearts as to myself i put a good face upon the matter but all the time i thought with anguish it is war i shall be alone war will sever us from all we love blood and tears will be shed everywhere may god save france and have pity upon us on the second of august war was an unquestioned fact mobilization was proclaimed my husband has served in the navy and had to go to cherbourg the next day we then began preparations for the departure of our sailor who increased my cares by saying over and over again don't expect me to remain in the navy there is nothing to do there i will be sent to the east of france and see the white of the prussians eyes the luggage being ready we went for a stroll in the village war was of course the one topic of the day to qualify them for the toils of mars the men had duly sacrificed to bacchus and their patriotism was none the less fiery for that most women were silent many had cried their eyes quite red one day more and they would be alone with groups of small children a very young woman almost a girl declared with a toss of her light hair bachelors who have but their own body to care for ought to go and fight that's right but fathers of a family her neighbor next door madame turgot nodded assent she had a baby in her arms and was pensively listening to her husband who hot with anger was speechifying not very far off in his quality of orator he discoursed not only upon germans but upon spies also in the morning two germans had been arrested in Lyon and the day before a man who was going to blow up a bridge had been shot but look two strangers appeared at the corner of the street all faces grew serious and turgot advancing towards the men demanded their papers when they refused to show them the crowd grew nervous and turgot thought himself insulted cries and bad names filled the air until the soldiers astonished at the uproar took the culprits away to examine their papers the lover of justice came back home greatly pleased with himself people gathered round him and declared policemen gendarmes all humbug fortunately we are here to maintain order and all together they went to the next inn and from the adventure drew this moral lesson no more strangers france for frenchmen pleasant and peaceful the last evening was drawing to its close the last of many evenings that will never come again the following morning i went to the station with my husband there was a large crowd on the platform the men high in spirit seemed delighted to go off to the army silent and gloomy the women stood close to their husbands and their eyes betrayed a sadness past remedy then came the train full of soldiers of the reserve singing at the top of their voices all get into the crowded carriages a whistle is heard the train moves forward a last kiss a last handshake the dear face leans out of the window my eyes raised up towards it until its features disappear and vanish in the distance it is all over he is gone they are gone towards glory towards death who knows i came back home forlorn and sad 
In vain Colette's endearing words and Genevieve's warm affection awaited me. Love had deserted the house. The following days glided by, tiresome and empty, but fortunately we soon found an occupation. A regiment of artillery was formed in the neighborhood. Two batteries were quartered in Morny, and willing needlewomen were required to put the uniforms of the soldiers into good condition. Very well. There are no opportunities for high deeds, let us be content with small ones. We put together needles, scissors, and thread, and thus armed ran to the school where the other women were already working. And what work! We were told to shorten trousers, to let jackets out, to sew stripes, and to stitch numbers on collars and sleeves. A noisy and merry activity prevailed in the yard. When off duty, the soldiers gathered about the big nut tree whose shadow protected the needlewomen from the sun. Harmless jokes were exchanged, and Germany, of course, had to bear the brunt of them. There was a tailor, a giant with a jolly face, who declared that he would get all he wanted on the other side of the Rhine, and for a ball of thread or a missing button would send you straight to Berlin. These good-natured and simple ways were all the more touching on account of the dangers which lay ahead. And, what we highly appreciated, the soldiers behaved like gentlemen. We spent many hours with them, and never heard a rough or coarse word. For truth's sake, I must say their captain kept a sharp lookout upon his men. He was about forty-five, had nice eyes and a kindly face. We heard his name and found out that he was a famous man whose works we greatly admired. We had common friends, too, and it was not long before we became real comrades and told him how eager we were to be of some use to our country. Don't you think we might nurse a few wounded soldiers in our house? we asked. The captain was good enough to like the idea. All right, he said, if your rooms are large enough and airy. Come and see yourself. The captain came first alone, and the day after with two surgeon majors. They made calculations and then declared that we might receive thirty soldiers. Two empty houses our neighbors offered out of kindness would contain twenty other beds. Fifty soldiers would compose quite a sufficient ambulance, and to our heart's delight we might devote our strength to the wounded. In Léon, they will be only too pleased to send you convalescence, Monsieur Vinchant told us. Plenty of patients will soon fill the hospitals, and a doctor from the town will come every day to tend your invalids. This medical visit did not remain the only one Monsieur Vinchant paid us. About nine o'clock, his day's work over, our new friend came round and knocked at the window. Our talk was chiefly on war, the only topic we took an interest in. Men are good for nothing. Monsieur Vinchon said. Courage is their only gift. That is why I am delighted with the present war. At peace, men are out of their right element. Then you must improve the occasion and make the best of it, for certainly there will be universal peace after the present war, and you men will be forever out of your element. No one answered, and our silence called up a picture of dead and wounded stretched upon a plain where a battle had taken place and again we talked of Belgian courage, of that heroic Liège which had to face such fearful odds and did not yield to brute strength. We likened the storming party to the turbulent waters which beat furiously against a dike, but we knew the dike was strong and would not give way. The Germans were not highly appreciated by Captain Vachon. They are not intelligent, he declared, but... They are not. I do not deny their qualities. They are fine imitators, but no creators. They make good use of others' inventions, and derive benefit from discoveries they would be unable to make themselves. Their talents, quite practical, are not what is called intelligence. 
Cuvier, Pasteur, Lamarque have no rivals on the other side of the Rhine, and their work no equal. Besides, consider that for fifty years our neighbors have thought of but one goal, a victorious war. But that is very important just now. Never mind, intelligence will get the better of brute strength and crush it. The mere thought of victory sent a thrill of rapturous joy through our hearts. On going out through the yard, lit up by the moon's rays, the captain listened to the whistle of the trains and said with a smile, Food for powder. At full speed the trains rolled on both lines, day and night. The food for powder went by without ceasing. Food for powder. And yet the expression is not right. For the soul of every man was awake. At the call of war all men were ready to fight and to die. All shouted victory in the assurance that it would come to us. In the village our confidence met some distrust. Madame Tassin, who acts as housekeeper when we are away, tossed her gray head. I was young when I saw them for the first time in seventy. What shall I do at my age if they come here now? Geneviève was filled with horror at the mere suggestion. In the farm nearby, Madame Lantois expressed the very same unreasonable fears. Do you think we shall have them here? she asked a young lieutenant who was as bitterly disgusted as we were. Meanwhile, our gunners were ready from head to foot, and their horses from mane to hoof. We heard the last exhortations of the captain to his men, and the next day we got up at four o'clock in the morning to see them off. It was magnificent. The sun shone in triumph upon the martial train. The flower-covered cannon had a good-humored air. The horses pawed the ground, and the gunners had not smiles enough to throw to us, nor caps enough wherewith to salute us. Captain Vachon, before he took leave, introduced his horse. It was a skittish little mare, he thought, clever and sweet-tempered. Once more we wished him success, and once more hoped that the war would spare him and his men. And all, soldiers, officers, and horses, galloped off, and were soon hidden from our sight amid the poplar trees in the sun and the dust. The last soldier had departed. The village was empty of men, and the women from sunrise to sunset were working in the fields. We led an uninteresting life. In fact, we did not live in Morny, but in Belgium, where our soldiers were fighting. Our overburdened minds looked forward passionately to the result of the first conflict. What was going to happen? End of chapter 1